Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. In today's episode, I'm going to interview Galen Ray Emerson, who I interviewed in the previous episode. So like always, if you haven't listened to that one, please go back and check it out. She's fantastic. And in that episode, we talked a lot about relapse preparedness and how women can prepare themselves to be ready for any sort of disruption with relapse in their relationship with someone with an addiction. And in this episode, we are going to talk about how women can grieve from sexual abandonment. Now, what is sexual abandonment? Well, she's going to get in there and explain it quite deeply, but here's here's the basic version of it. Sexual abandonment is when you are abandoned sexually by somebody else. They turn to somebody else or something else, pornography, fantasy affairs, and leave you with all these attachment longings and wounds for what should have been. And Galen in this episode goes through a very specific process that she uses on how to help women heal from that sexual abandonment. Galen is a recovery coach that works specifically with women dealing with betrayal, and she has a tremendous amount of training, including APSAT certified coach and all kinds of other great trainings and certifications that make her more than qualified to talk about this. I think you'll see that she is wonderful, she's creative, and she's very engaging to listen to. So I'm really thrilled that we got her on the podcast, and I look forward to sharing this information with all of you. So let's just jump right in to the interview with Galen Ray Emerson. Well, welcome back to the Illuminate podcast. Galen, I really appreciate having you back on. Hello, Jeff. Thank you for having me. So let's just dive right into this topic. We have a lot to talk about, and this is not going to be an easy one, but it's so important to understand the complexity of grief and loss for women who have been betrayed sexually. And can we first jump in and start talking about this whole concept of what you mean by sexual abandonment? Right. Yeah. I love starting off with some definitions and some shared understanding of what a concept actually is, making it as personal and applicable as possible to these unique situations that we find ourselves in. So when I refer to sexual and relational abandonment, when I first started working in this world of porn and sex addiction, I really had to broaden my perspective on that word abandonment because I had kind of this very stereotypical traditional idea of being abandoned meant, you know, being left on the church steps as a baby, you know, being having someone walk out on their family, just kind of that sense of willful and dramatic physical abandonment from someone who is supposed to be a loving and supportive, you know, partner or parent or something like that. So when I began looking at what I was hearing from the women I was working with, this intense sense of abandonment, of separation, of withdrawal, of someone being physically present, perhaps, but emotionally, mentally, relationally, spiritually in a completely different space. You know, I hear stories like, you know, he was sitting right next to me on the couch, but he seemed like he was a million miles away. I really started tuning into this sense of, especially when we're working with porn addicts and sex addicts, these individuals taking away from their primary relationship the things that they could share within that relationship and instead investing them elsewhere at the expense of the person left in the relationship. So you've got someone who has a spouse, a partner, a loving, committed 
person with whom they're doing life. And instead of nurturing that relationship, instead of feeding that connection, whether it's sexually, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, all of the things, they're instead taking themselves and investing them outside of the relationship. And the person left behind in the relationship feels this suck. You know, they feel the vacuum of what's not there with that person. That's where that sense of abandonment comes from. And that's why the word abandonment takes on a different dimension than that kind of traditional stereotypical perspective that I at least brought to this work when I first started really looking at this kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, especially, and I think it's so difficult because there's not a lot of external validation for this because the partner is still right there. They're going to church together. They're hanging out together. They're raising kids together. They might even be going on dates together, but you're saying that there's a void. There's a misdirection of or misuse of those resources that are, should be exclusive to the marriage, to the spouse, to the partner but they're being taken away and given somebody or something else. And it's like, you don't even know at what point to scream, right? It's like, it's just one of those things that is there, but nobody else can really see it. Only you can really feel it. So it's crazy making. And even then, you know, we're not always born knowing what's going on in ourselves. So we might (laughs) feel the sensation or feel the disconnect, but not really know to what we should attribute it. So true. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also another element of, you know, not only abandonment by the partner, but in all that confusion, there can also be a level of self-abandonment too, when, right, where you're like denying what you feel, or you're giving up on things that used to be important to you, or you're, you know, challenging your own sense of what's happening and the list goes on. And so there can be just so much emptiness, both internally, externally, relationally, when this happens, that can obviously leave a woman feeling like she's lost her mind. And really that sense of self-abandonment is the most excruciating of all in my experience. That sense of, yes, the person I loved abandoned me, but where did I lose myself? Where did I lose my way? And how did that happen? Right. You know, and a lot of of the listeners that are tuning into this podcast are specifically interested in around pornography addiction. And clearly, you know, we have lots of people who who have dealt with affairs. And the idea of abandonment you know, sexual abandonment seems more measurable and concrete when you're dealing with a physical sexual abandonment, a relationship where you're taking something and giving it to another person, another live person. But with pornography, sometimes it can feel so like virtual, right? So disconnected. And there can be this question of, well, how does this idea of sexual abandonment play into pornography addiction? What would you say about that? Yeah. Well, and I think you highlighted quite simply and fundamentally with the fact that, you know, there is a difference. There's so much justification or rationalization. We just by default pour into this conversation. You know, it wasn't like I had sex with a real woman. It wasn't like I left you, you know, you know, never mind the fact that there's all of that energy being poured elsewhere. So this conversation really requires that we opt out of all of those rationalizations that as painful as it is, We can sit here and say, when you're off looking at pornography in the other room and I'm sitting here without you, that's abandoning me. You're sexually abandoning me by not nurturing what is here and instead pouring yourself into that. There's so much opportunity cost. I talk about this sometimes with addicts who are doing really well in recovery and they say, you know, I didn't have a life before. My whole life was about my addiction. And now that I'm no longer doing and engaging in that, there's so much more of me to go around you know? And so those healthy opportunities that otherwise would exist are also being lost in this whole equation. You know, this is really also, Jeff, where the grief part comes in in a really big way, 
So there's some good writing out there on the topic of ambiguous grief. So ambiguous grief being that disconnect between physical presence and psychological distance. And it goes both ways. So you can feel that ambiguous grief when someone is physically present, but emotionally and psychologically absent. You can also feel when someone is emotionally and psychologically present, but physically absent. So it goes both ways. It's an interesting phenomenon, but it's where this whole grief thing starts to get really complicated. It's not as simple as it first appears on the surface. You know, we understand when someone dies, when someone leaves, when someone through no fault of their own may be taken from us. But what happens when it's an actual intentional choice by the person we love the most? That takes on a whole different kind of dimension when it comes to the abandonment and the grief factor. Right. And I think that that distinction is critical because so many women that are dealing with this are, are told by other people, you know, they're, they're oftentimes told that they, you know, at least he didn't whatever, right? At least he right. didn't. There's all these qualifiers about why it shouldn't hurt as bad, but yet they feel gutted in almost a deeper way than if he had died or if he had, you know, you know, being kidnapped or something. I mean, there's just that intentionality, right? That piece of the choice, that part of his agency or his ability to choose in or out of this, but chose something different. That part is hard. That part hurts. And that's, yeah, yeah that's a different kind and of if grief. If there were two words I could eradicate from the dictionary, they would be at least. <laughs> those, those are such damaging words. Oh. And we use them on ourselves right. as much as we use them on others. They're so hurtful. Right. Yeah. I think Brene Brown did a great job in her little video with the little cartoon with the, I think it's a fox or some animal down on the hole, right? Empathy versus a sympathy. If you want to look it up on YouTube, because boy, that is such a go-to and it really minimizes the grief experience. This type of grief from what you're describing, and I've seen it as well in my practice. I mean, ambiguous is the perfect word for it. It's kind of like, at what point do I define exactly what's happened to me? It's like, there's so many different ways to feel it and describe it. But at the core, it's this sense of like, this person chose something other than right. fill in the blank, right? Which is right. me, our marriage, our kids, our sexual life. It's like that intentionality seems to be the, the part of the abandonment. The abandonment is the active part. It's like they walked away from that. They didn't care. Yeah, absolutely. Right. right. And it, it is different. And that's one of the things that I really rally for and advocate for is for partners going through this grief to give themselves permissions to experience it in a different way then they may have experienced other losses because you know what worked in that situation may not be a direct application to what they're going through now so when i started doing this work i would you know go default to elizabeth kubler ross's five stage model for death and dying which death and dying is not the same as my husband having a porn addiction right so the grief responses and those grief cycles and those grief stages that are so common we you know we know them quite you know, they're part of our culture and our world. We understand those five stages of grief that we've been taught all along. But then when they're not a direct application to this abandonment part, it can leave us all feeling pretty confused about, well, what am I feeling and what labels or languaging do I put to it? So, I mean, it really is so important to understand how this grief, how this abandonment, how this loss is, you know, nuanced, how it's different than, like you said, the traditional ways that we often talk about grief and loss, which sometimes doesn't really serve people. Who are going through this, it can feel very disconnected. And you know, you talk about this concept of swirl. It's an acronym for really breaking down how this type of abandonment is different. I'm just going to let you dive into that and teach us what that really is. Perfect. So one of the things I love most in my work is when I can get my hands on 
a tool that is very well suited to a particular task. That's always one of those kind of inner thrills. Like, okay, I have what I need now. So a couple of years ago, I found this beautiful book written by a psychotherapist from the Upper East Coast. Her name is Susan Anderson. I've actually done on-site training with her as well. And she wrote this book called The Journey from Abandonment to Healing, Surviving Through and Recovering from the five stages that accompany the loss of love. So, you know, pretty specific to what we're going through, even though it doesn't fit in the tiny little soundbite. But she developed this model for abandonment grief specifically. So she called it swirl. She gives us this beautiful visual and verbal metaphor for what this grief process is like. So when you think of a swirl, you know, like a great big tornado or a hurricane or a cyclone of some sort, cycling around, coming back around to things over and over again right at the very innermost part of that swirl where things are their most intense and things are moving the most quickly and the most damage is being done. You're rapid cycling through all that stuff. And then as things, you know, get a little bit more relaxed toward the top of the cyclone, you get a little bit more time to adapt between those stages as they go around. So, you know, what she identified those five stages with is this beautiful acronym that fits with this image of swirl. So the letters S as in Sam, W-I-R-L. So the word swirl spelled out for shattering withdrawal, internalization, rage, and lifting. So if it's okay with you, I'll just quickly pop through those those pages and kind of interpret and translate why this is so applicable. So shattering, this is the most self-explanatory of all of the stages. Anyone who's had a discovery of any kind of loss, betrayal, grief, et cetera, in their life remembers that moment when life changes, right? That moment when things are no longer the way they used to be. Susan Anderson uses a lot of S words to describe this experience severing. You feel severed from life the way it used to be. This is particularly true when you're talking about betrayal from your most intimate attached, you know, that we talk about the secure attachment, the partner who's supposed to have your back, but that shattering when life completely falls apart and nothing is the way it used to be before. The W in swirl stands for withdrawal. Now, this is where things get really interesting. And this is where partners tend to find their most confusing and conflicted emotions around the topic of abandonment grief. So withdrawal is where we see these women who are in extreme hurt and trauma as the result of learning that their partner has abandoned them sexually and relationally for porn, for another woman, for activity, whatever it may be. And yet in the process of experiencing this deep hurt and pain, she's also feeling the void of not having him be her person the way he was before. So that sense of not only did I lose my reliance upon my best friend, now I don't even have my best friend to turn to to talk about it. There's that sense of I want him back to make things the way they used to be. I want him back to fix this. I want him back to make me feel better. And along with these withdrawal symptoms, this feeling of emptiness that highlights that void that is not not there anymore comes a lot of self-incrimination. Why would I be missing the person? who hurt me so badly? Why would I be feeling the withdrawal of having him in my life? I see this even in my work with women who are divorced or separated. You know, this was the thing that was stopping the hurt, but now why do I still miss all of the good things that we used to share, right? So this withdrawal period gets really confusing and and really intense. But here's why it's important to reframe all of this as grief, Jeff. When we talk about When my women, my clients talk about how they feel about this withdrawal thing, you know, not the feeling, but the feeling about the feeling, this is where they start beating up on themselves very badly. This is where they start thinking there's two P words that always come up, pitiful and pathetic. I'm so pathetic because here I am 
sitting here wounded and betrayed. And yet all I want to do is have him come and wrap his arms around me. All I want to do is have him come and tell me it's going to be okay. So when I can say to these women, this isn't some weird, insecure, pitiful, needy, pathological expression on your part. This is actually a grief response to this withdrawal. The self-compassion that comes from that is so intense and so powerful that it really becomes a game changer within this whole conversation. Leads very easily and very comfortably into the next stage, which is internalization. That's that I word. This is where we say, something about this must have to do with me. This is where we say he left because I wasn't pretty enough. He left because I wasn't sexual enough. He left because I didn't take care of the kids well enough. He left because I'm boring. He left because I'm getting old. And here's where this gets really interesting too. Most of us find it easier to believe that there's something wrong with us that we can fix because if it's not about us, then what do we do? We have less options. We have less ability to go in and change the game. This is where Susan Anderson describes a lot of vulnerability to infection when this internalization doesn't get dealt with and doesn't get processed through, we can get stuck in that internalization phase. And I'm guessing, you know, dollars to donuts, you see this a lot in your practice working with betrayed partners. The fourth letter here in this little acronym, RAGE, this is really an interesting one. Uh, Most men that I talk to are quite surprised to learn that the women that I work with don't like being angry. Being angry is not a feel-good thing. We, it's something that we sometimes struggle to avoid. It's sometimes we think we should avoid, even though we can't avoid it. But there's this sense of rage is not about feeling the anger and doing nothing about it. In Susan Anderson's model of responding to abandonment grief, rage becomes purposeful. Rage is where we identify the injustice of the situation, where we say something here is completely not okay. Something has gone very, very, very wrong and something is not as it should be. And beautiful part about rage in this particular dynamic is we use it like we talked earlier to leverage our way into doing something different. This is where we become activists. This is where we become advocates. This is where we begin fighting like never before for ourselves and our lives and our families because we are so motivated. Someday I'll tell you the story of how I actually got into this work. I got into this work because I read a quote in a book that made me so mad I threw it across the room. And I'm like, I can sit here and keep throwing books across the room or I can get involved and start actually doing something about it. So that's just a a quick little reference to that rage thing that can be such a big deal. Now the lifting, and then I'm almost done with all this part, Jeff, the lifting the L in this swirl is one of the most misunderstood. So when I first read this, I thought, okay, well, that makes sense. That applies to, correlates with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's acceptance, right? So somehow we've gotten through all the rest of it and the feelings of grief are going to lift. But when I actually read the content that Susan wrote, that's not what it means at all. Lifting is this process, this stage of the grief whereby we rise above our pain. We rise above the grief. Now, this can happen in both healthy, responsible ways and unhealthy or irresponsible ways. So a healthy response to lifting might be saying, I feel the grief. I feel the trauma. I feel the betrayal. It's all there. And I'm going to go work. I'm going to go pick up the kids. I'm going to go make Thanksgiving dinner for my family. I'm going to do the things in my life that the grief can't and won't totally overwrite and empower and paralyze. What happens when lifting 
occurs in an unhealthy or unsustainable really way is when we keep rising above and never go back to those feelings. This is where we stuff things. This is where we sideline things. This is where we lock it up and throw away the key and hope we never have to look at it again. In those particular cases, lifting can be just as dysfunctional as some of those other stages like the withdrawal and the incrimination. So internalization. So shattering withdrawal, internalization, rage, and lifting, those are kind of the five stages of responding to this abandonment grief that I find really useful in terms of giving us reference points for what it is that's going on and what then we need to and want to do about it. And it really helps women organize their experience. And it's so Mm -hmm. validating to have language to wrap around this. As I'm listening to this also, I'm struck by how helpful this has to be for people who are supporting loved ones who are going through betrayal trauma. How have you seen understanding this help those who are in support roles? I think the number one answer I would offer to that is that it has helped us be more compassionate and less judgmental, more open-minded and less presumptive. So when we see things like someone going through that internalization stage, we don't immediately leap to the pathological presumptions of, well, this is, you know, insecurity, this is low self-esteem, this is, you know, codependence. It can be any one of those more pathological designations that when we look at it instead as a healthy process-oriented grief response that we're going to get through eventually, and we do get through it, it can be more tolerant and more spacious, like giving individuals a way to work through it without kind of putting them in that box that we would otherwise maybe, you know, gravitate toward. Yeah, I love that idea, the kind of the visual of giving women space, lots of room to sort of walk around this giant room of trying to make sense of what they've just been through and what they're going through and what they will go through. There's so many things to explore and consider and they need that permission. Right. And that's why I love the swirl model. You know, again, it's a circular process. You're going to come back to it. I tell women all the time, look, if this is something you can't deal with right now, don't worry about it. It will come back. (laughs) It will come around again. If you can't do it right now and it's something that you need to do, you will get another opportunity to engage this when you are ready to handle it. So a lot of women that I talk to, I'm sure you as well, they struggle with this concept of, of it being a grief process. They, you know, sort of, you know, the the sort of standard maybe Western American model for getting over things is just to stop it, right? Or just like buckle up and and not let people get to you or don't let other people affect the way you feel. And we we have all these sort of cultural messages about getting over things and moving on and not letting things affect you. Why is grieving so good for us in terms of healing and specifically for women that are betrayed? We'll just talk about that. Why going through grief? Why does that matter? And, you know, right. I, on the flip side, what happens if they don't? Right. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up because this takes us back to trauma recovery 101. Okay. So when we go back to the basics of what it means to recover from any kind of significant, interper- especially interpersonal trauma, there are three basic stages to resolve it. The first stage, we need safety and stability. We need the hemorrhage to stop. We need to get our grips. We need to get our bearings and get our feet under us. We need the world to stop spinning somehow. Right, that's the very first step. The second step in that resolution process is remembering and mourning. And those are simple words that embody a huge amount of work. So this is where we do the contextualizing and the processing. How does this loss fit into the greater picture of our lives and our existence on this planet? What does it mean? 
how, what do we need to do about it? This is the, this is the stage where I actually spend the most time working with my clients, especially betrayed partners. This, how does this loss integrate into the rest of my life versus being that thing that we wish we could just forget about and, you know, say happily ever after and move on from it. It doesn't work that way. One of my mentors on the topic of grief writes about this being a reconciliation. You you bring two disparate pieces of life together, the part that was before and the part it is now, the part that you thought was and the part that actually was. So it's this, this integration and reconciliation of two different parts of life. And the thing is, if we don't engage and process our way through this grief, we end up with something that is a little bit more pathological called complicated grief. And I don't know how familiar you might be with that, but the way I describe it is it's like if you have a a surgery, a routine surgery, there are certain steps that's supposed to go a certain way and then you're supposed to come out the other side in recovery. But if things go wrong during the surgery or if things don't go according to plan, you get what's called complications, right? So grief is very much the same way. Complicated grief and it happens most often with traumatic loss. Complicated grief is when we get stuck. So it's one of the reasons why I tell my clients, don't even try to engage the grieving process all by yourself. Get some kind of a support system around you because you're going to need that to be to make sure that you are moving through it. I was reading a book the other day, um, Emily Nagoski, she wrote that book, um, Come As You Are, about female sexuality. Yeah. She talks about feelings being a tunnel, not a cave, and how easy it is for us to forget that there is another side that we're going to come out of. Sometimes we find it easier to believe it on behalf of others than believe it on behalf of ourselves when we feel the darkness closing in. But just trusting the process will work through, that's going to be the real, the real key part to doing that. And just to kind of wrap up super quick, the, the third stage of that trauma resolution is reconnection. It's when having done that grieving, you know, people say tears are like they wash you clean, right? What's left then? And what do we want to do with those new clear eyes that we have that can envision something different and better and whole and new for ourselves and that reconnection, that triumph over trauma that we come out with on the other side, the post-traumatic growth. Right. And, and what a loss to miss out on. I mean, certainly stages two and three. I mean, the first one, stabilization, you know, sometimes, but I think, I think the stabilization requires a level of grief and acceptance, right? Just the sense of like, this is actually happening to me. I'm not going to ignore it. Yes. Right. Getting to safety, getting stability, as you talked about, requires the ability to face reality, to face these things. And all three of those stages require the ability to kind of stay in that and hold that, even with all of the crazy contradictions that, <laughs> that go on with right. it, which is I know why, you know, so many people just want to run from that because there's, there's no easy answers. There's no easy resolution. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I love what you're saying. Staying in this process requires the ability to sort of hold opposing feelings, opposing emotions. Grief and loss is all about a lot of contradiction. Yes, absolutely. And, and we really mm -hmm. can't begin to sort through it until that shock stage has worn off. For sure. Oh. So that's one thing I would say to anyone listening to this who is really new to the process and that whole swirl thing just feels ridiculously overwhelming yeah. is to give yourself time. The grief will find you. You, don't, you won't have to go searching <laughs> for it. Focus on surviving through the numbness and the shock. Yeah. And when you're ready, the grief will show up at your doorstep, I promise. Yeah, we don't ask soldiers who are taking active fire how they feel about war. Right. You know, we just don't. Very good analogy. And so, you know, you, you have to get to safety and then unpack all that later and, and sort of make yeah. sense of it and then decide how they want to re-engage with themselves, with other people, with God, 
And there are just a lot of decisions that you're finally able to start making with more, you know, more clarity. And uh, yeah, I love this. So there's so much here, obviously, we could talk for hours and hours and hours about this, but give you a chance to sort of summarize or wrap up whether you've got a great quote or, uh, you know, some concluding thoughts here about this whole abandonment grief process and really giving uh, my listeners, both partners that are betrayed and also those who are supporting. We have a very uh, diverse audience that way. What would you want them to know about this process? Yeah. Yeah. And sometime you and I should have a conversation about the way men and women grieve differently. Ooh, yeah, that'd be great. Context. It's a fun one. I did a presentation about it last year, but, but, but it can be really enlightening for couples when they're both going through their own grieving processes. I mean, addicts do it too. Totally. Right? So, so it's an interesting interrelation there. But to get back to answering your question. So there are three simple things that I always encourage individuals to start with when they're thinking about this whole grief process. The first one we already talked about, don't try to do it alone. It really does require a support system of the best possible kind, not just any kind of support system, but really quality support people who can not only hold space for you when things are hard, but also celebrate the victory when things start to get a little bit easier and you start to get a little bit of relief from the grief. I love that. Honoring baby steps. Baby steps change the world. I have that on a little post-it I wrote just kind of impromptu one day. Baby steps change the world. Baby steps get you where you need to go, right? So don't feel like you have to take these major leaps in order to get this process started. Lean into the, the, the okayness, if you will, of baby steps. Baby steps are where it's at. And the very last thing, I'm going to hearken back to what I said about Alan Wolfelt, um, my, my grief mentor, has written some amazing stuff. One of the most transformational things he wrote that I've ever read said, to heal faster, slow down. And his point is, when we get so focused on getting through the grief process, getting to the end, getting to the point it doesn't hurt anymore, we actually push so fast that we miss pausing to experience the very things that will get us where we need to go. It's that bypassing that we see sometimes. So if you want to heal faster, slow down it will actually get you where you need to go more efficiently than trying to rush through the process. And isn't that the hardest thing in the world to ask somebody <laughs> to do? <laughs> it is the hardest thing in the world, yes. It's so counterintuitive, right? We're healers, we're helpers, we're supporters, we're trying to get people to safety and, and stability and peace. And boy, we but, just want to Amtrak all the way there, but it's, we can't do it. It's that we can't fight that process. It has to be yeah. slow. I'm right with so you. Even though it's the last thing we want to hear, yeah, it also carries with it a bit of relief. Like yeah. we don't have to make it happen. There's nothing wrong with us if we're not healing faster. I love it. Um, you know, so that it, it's, it's another reframe. We can reframe everything for the most part, Jeff. It's a powerful little tool, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're you're yeah, I love that. We we have to slow down. And I think having, you know, this this swirl concept is such a powerful way to break it down, to slow it down, to organize it. And even naming it grief, people have an a, an automatic association with grief and loss around death and dying, and we've all experienced some level of of loss in that way and just how long and and complicated and messy that can be depending on the circumstances. But to really then take it a step further and say well, let's take a closer look at what this really is when it comes to a relational sexual loss, grief, abandonment. And we really do open up an invitation to, to have a bigger, deeper, more, I think, intimate conversation with those who are hurting. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can really become, I mean, I'm speaking now to, to those who are supporting, those who are listening for a loved one. 
you embracing and understanding this and getting more education about it will be an absolute gift to the person you're supporting for you to not be one of the bypassers, for you to not be one of the the hurriers and the rushers trying to get mm -hmm. them somewhere else and allowing them to be right where they are and stay with you and just keep moving very slowly or for you to stay with them rather and just keep moving uh, with them as they they progress through it. I love it. This is great stuff. And it's just oh, it's so nice to- yeah, and it's so nice to know there's answers, right? That this isn't just yes. totally chaotic and unorganized. Like we actually, you know, it's have... funny because I tell people I'm I'm really loving the grief work I'm doing with clients right now, and they look at me like I'm insane. Yeah. But then when I start to explain how deeply inspirational it is, it begins to make a little more sense. But yeah, grief is my jam these days. This is where this is where it's at for me, and and the healing work I'm doing with my clients. Awesome, Galen. Thank you for coming and talking about this. This is You're great. You're very stuff. welcome, Jeff. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. You can connect with Gaylin on her website, womeneverafter.com. And on that website, you'll find her blog and lots of other resources. And I encourage you to check it out. She's a great writer and a great resource to have as you are learning more and understanding more about betrayal trauma and how to heal. Once again, I want to thank Gaylin for her time and her willingness to come on this show and educate all of us. Isn't she a great resource? I just love talking to her. And in the next episode of the Illuminate podcast, I'm going to bring Rick Thompson, a therapist who works a lot with young men and women who are preparing to serve full-time missions for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who go out for two years or 18-month missions, and oftentimes have to confront previous histories with pornography or other types of addictions. And he's going to talk about how to best prepare and help strengthen these young people as they prepare to go out and do full-time missionary service and all the challenges that come up with that, especially for those that might struggle while they're out there. So Rick's an expert on this, and I'm really looking forward to sharing that interview with him. He's a great therapist and a great individual. And once again, I want to thank all of you for all of your support and all of your ideas and feedback about the Illuminate podcast. As always, you can connect with me at jeff at trustbuildingacademy.com. That's G-E-O-F-F -F at trustbuildingacademy.com. I love hearing from you. So thanks again, and I'll catch you in the next episode.